This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. This is powered by Digital Media. Please meet Lauren Good from The Verge. I'm going to tell you about one of our fine sponsors. Today's sponsor is Sortable. Ads suck and monetizing your website is hard work. Sortable uses technology and machine learning to make intelligent decisions about which ad networks will perform best for each user on your site. Stop worrying about your ads and focus on creating great content. Go to sortable.com slash recode. Thanks, Lauren. Oh, I want to tell you about Mac Weldon, who makes awesome hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks. Jenna Wortham, I am wearing the Mac Weldon socks right now. Can you see them? <laughs> oh, I like them. That, see, they're she cute. was she was going to laugh. Now she says they're cute. They are Jenna Wortham approved. They are comfortable. They are made from antimicrobial fiber, which means you smell good when you wear them. They are easy to buy. You go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. If for some reason you don't like this stuff, I can't imagine that's the case, you can keep it. Mac Weldon will send you your money back. That's how it works in 2016. You get 20% off. That's good for you. It's good for me. Go to MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code RECODE. MacWeldon.com. Promo code RECODE. Jenna Wortham. Hey, Peter. It seemed like this interview would not happen. <laughs> we tried it once. It didn't work. Thank you for sticking around. We of appreciate course. it. Of course. Uh, what is the best way to describe you, Jenna? You are a staff writer, New York Times Magazine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's your day job. That's my day job. You yeah. do other cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Do we say you work for Pop-Up Magazine? You created something for Pop-Up Magazine. I was a contributor last season, if they're, if they call what they do seasons. I was on tour with them last season for their last edition of stories. Okay. We'll explain to people what that means because they won't know what that means because okay. they, they haven't seen it. Most likely it's a very small audience. Yeah. My main point being you have a day job at the New York Times Magazine, one of the best platforms in the world. And then you also do other things because they're fun mm-hmm. for the most part. When I reached out to you to come to this podcast, you were in what country? I was in Senegal. I was in Dakar visiting a friend who's living there. You weren't, on, you weren't on assignment. You just went on your own. I just went on my own. I mean, I guess everything is sort of contributing to this broader assignment, right, of like trying to be a better reporter and writer. But yeah, I had a friend who's doing a leap year and subletting his place in San Francisco and using the money he's making to travel the world. And um, I just kept an eye on flight prices. And as soon as one dropped below 800, I bought it and decided this is my vacation for the year. I'm going to go hang out with my friend in Africa. Because <laughs> you are someone, this is a good example of sort of how social media works, which is, I know you a little bit, but I don't think we've talked in person more than a handful of times. Yeah. But I follow you on Twitter, follow you on Instagram. I don't follow you on Snapchat because I don't understand how Snapchat works. We can talk <laughs> about that in a second. But so I have this perception of you as being sort of this globe-trotting woman of action and adventure. Yeah. And I like it's to true. keep them guessing. I like, peop- I like people, I don't want people to ever know where I am or what's coming next. Well, <laughs> Periodically, I'll see I'll see someone I compete with in journalism, and they'll say, oh, I'm, in, I'm in Philadelphia. Like, oh, they're, they're right. going to see Comcast, unless they're lying, trying to make me think they go to Comcast. But you just go. Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm lucky. My job sends me all kinds of places. I'm going to Atlanta next week, and then I'm going to speak at the Chicago Humanities Festival. So I get to travel around the U.S. a lot. But, you know, I I don't know. I do a lot of side work so I can subsidize all this extensive travel I want to do. I just, I want to see the world. I want to see the world beyond Instagram hashtags. I want to see, you know, I want to understand how people are living in it and interacting instead of just looking at my circle and assuming that's how it works for everybody else. So that's been like a personal decision. You know, it's just been a just sort of say, like, I'm not going to take a vacation. I don't even know what a vacation even is because we work all the time. But I decided if I was going to take time off, I was going to use it in a way that would make me a much broader thinker and a much smarter writer. So that's what I've been doing. Because the Times will send you, even in 2016, they've got the budget to send you all around the world if you want to go, right? 
For some people, it's not necessarily for me, but uh, I also haven't pitched a story to West Africa or South Africa. Maybe I should, but but I haven't asked. I mean, I also think it's good to, I think there's a lot of value in kind of sending yourself somewhere on spec if you can swing it and sort of figuring out what the stories are and then trying to go back. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, yeah you come back yeah. and say, look what I found in Senegal. Look what I found. Let's do it. You Let's know, and back. then, you know, I'll write a book review or I'll do something internally and get paid a couple hundred bucks. And then that subsidizes the cost of the ticket. And I also, I went to see an incredible accountant last year. This woman, Pamela Copeland, I think her name is, but her whole thing is called Brunch and Budget. And she, you take her out to brunch and she fixes your budget. And so when I went to, we met maybe two years ago and I was having deep financial anxiety about my life. Am I going to die poor and alone? Like, you know, <laughs> a lot of famous writers I read about. And she kind of helped me look at what I was spending money on, way too much money on Uber and Seamless, which I was kind of like, we can cut out Seamless. Uber is kind of a hard dependency to like. Because you need to get from point A to point B. Got to get all around town. Um, but she kind of worked through that. And then we set up an account to sort of funnel money into it. She kind of was like, if you want to take these many trips and you want this to be your travel budget, this is how you sit, like set aside your money. So, you know, ever since then, I've been able to travel pretty freely and not, you know, undermining my bottom line what's, too much. What's, what's Jenna's best travel tip? If, well, a bunch of travel tips. If you want to save money for that trip to Senegal. Yeah. Sounds insane, but it's doable apparently. <laughs> Besides Seamless, what else are you cutting out? What are you not spending money on that you thought you needed to spend money on? I really don't spend a ton of money on food in New York. That's my biggest. I mean, I'm not a big, I'm not a big foodie. I cook a lot at home. I make a lot of juices and things at home. I'm a very, very simple vegetarian, like low meat eater. So I just, that saves me. I feel like that saves me a ton of money. That's so like the biggest. Eat less, make your own food. Yeah, eat less, eat less make your own, spend less money in New York if you can. Am, like cut off Amazon Prime. I mean, that is the devil. It's really? amazing, but we. Sp- I feel like it's so easy when you're like, oh, I can just Amazon Prime this. And like, it just lets you, it's like the worst for just frictionless consumption. Um, yeah, Consume but just less. like, you know, it's the most whimsical way to spend money because you're at your desk and you're like, oh, I really, oh, I see someone talking about like lavender body oil. I want some. Amazon Prime it. It'll be at home in you know two days. It's so like you're, I, mindless I, spending. When I met you, you were a technology reporter. Mm-hmm. You still sort of deal a lot with tech. I just assume that anyone who deals with tech has to not only do Amazon Prime, but every other service <laughs> and just test them and know what they are. And, and you need to sort of put yourself in the mindset of, yeah. of the average sort of right side of the bell curve consumer. But you say, no, I'm opting out. I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things about you from afar. One of the reasons I wanted to have you is you write a lot about the way technology is immersed in your daily life. The mm-hmm. way uh, one of the most interesting things I again, saw you talk about in the pop-up and you talked about uh, in your writing is sort of the way you use the phone mm-hmm. to sort of supplant some of your brain function at this point, right? Like you're using it as a place for memory, but you're also consciously saying, I want to also turn the phone off at some point. I want to unplug. I want to not use Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. Is that tension sort of conscious for you? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to stop being a daily reporter, and I miss writing for a newspaper. I miss writing for a daily because it's, it's, I'm an adrenaline junkie, I think, and probably everyone who's in news kind of is. And it's really fun to not know what you're going to do Monday morning, but you know you're going to do something. It's really exciting. But I felt like I was just moving so fast. I couldn't really ask the big questions about yeah, the way we live our lives. And, you know, part of the reason I started to become really uncomfortable with Amazon was a lot of the reporting that came out around shipping and packing practices. And I don't know what it means to sort of order so much stuff. And at this point, I do know how it works. So it's it's kind of hard to sort of justify an over-reliance on every single on-demand service as research. You know what I mean? Like, I know how Tinder works, so it's really hard to explain to my person right now if I'm still on Tinder. So <laughs> it's like, I don't know. But I did want, I don't know, I wanted a little more introspection and I wanted to take a step back and think more about the services that we're using and that we sort of 
these services that kind of modernize our lives and make everything really easy. They make things really easy for us, but they make things hard for a lot of other people. And so who are those other people? Who are the hands that are packing those boxes? Who are the people that are driving? I mean, every time I get into an Uber, I'm like, how many hours have you been driving? And they're like, 18. I'm like, that's not okay. That's actually not okay. I'm going to buy a bike this week so I can stop taking Uber now that it's warm out in New York. But it's really interesting. I mean, I... I just feel like all these services are totally changed. I mean, we know people are writing about this all the time. This is not a new thing, but you know that that I can play a role. You have a choice. I have a choice. Like all these, all these services are shaping global economic forces in New York, and I can decide to use them or not. So let's back up a tiny bit. I mm-hmm. think a lot of people who are listening to this know who you are, but for those who don't, your job at the Times Magazine is to cover what? Oh my gosh. Anything. No, I mean, I don't really, I've done a really good job in the last couple of years of not having a really specific beat, and I don't take that lightly, and I've tried really hard to kind of let my instincts guide me and guide what I want to cover and what I'm interested in. And I'm always sort of, you know, I love things on the come up. I love things that feel new. I love sort of thinking about how we're interacting with each other and our services. And lately I've just become also really invested in writing about entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs of color, queer women. I feel like those are the stories that get told or they're the people that don't get looked at as much. And I think when I spent years looking at bros in Silicon Valley, and many of them are wonderful and very nice, but they're all very similar and have a very similar background and story and goal. And I I just, I felt like there had to be more. And so the way I'm looking at the world and the things I'm interested in hasn't changed, but the vantage has just changed a little bit. And are you laying all this out to your editor saying, look, this is what I'm interested in covering or just each week you go, hey, guess what I'm writing about today? Yeah, actually, my editor is great. I just send him kind of thought clouds of words and gifts and songs <laughs> and say, does any of this speak to you? And he's very comfortable with that. So that is kind of how we work on a very ad hoc Basis. No, but at home I have a giant, anybody who's been to my house knows I have a giant whiteboard laying out every quarter and sort of high goals, low goals, themes, concepts, you know, travel plans. Like I, I have a dream board in my bedroom really? that I stick very closely to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So By that, quarter. And, and, I, and if I looked out, I could see what you're going to write about in three months yeah. or what you'd like to write about in <laughs> yeah. three months. So you get to work at the New York Times, at the New York Times Magazine. Uh-huh. You get to plot out your beat via dream board. Mm-hmm. You're set. This is it. I feel like I'm living the life. How'd you get here? I don't know. I think about this every day. I mean, it's been, I mean, I, gosh, I guess I've been at the Times now seven years. It feels like much longer, but it was a very long, circuitous path to this point. But I think it has helped me. I think because I didn't go to J school. I didn't have a traditional arc through journalism, which I think has probably been really helpful as a journalist. Started off where? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Virginia, right outside DC. Uh-huh. What was and the plan? Did you have a plan? My my first plan was to get to college. Most people in my family did not go to a four-year school. Most of them work for the government and the military, as many people in the area do. Totally great jobs, great benefits. But I knew probably wasn't the life for me. So the first goal was getting to college. And then I assumed that would take care of the rest, and I would figure everything out once I got there. Of course, the opposite happened. I had no idea what I was doing. I had a really hard time acclimating. I went to UVA in Charlottesville, which is a very conservative, very Southern school, but a couple of really good things happened. One, it's I met. Very, it's a very frat school, right? A frat I've, in appearance, <laughs> yeah. right? It's a polo well, it's, and Greek dockers. Is, and, yeah. yeah, Greek life is a big part of the life there. And there's a lot of pressure to conform. There's a lot of pressure to look a certain way, to have a certain type of career. To, But, you know, I freaked out once I got there and kind of bounced right away and went to London um, to study abroad. And at the time... I kind of, I had done really well in sciences in high school, so I thought I should study something science-related, and a lot of people, my adjacent friend circles, were all pre-med, so I thought, oh, this will be the thing I should do. 
I hated it. Oh my gosh, it just smothered my creativity. The work wasn't hard, but I just didn't enjoy it. Were you a science person? Yeah, I was a science person. I I mean, you liked that? Oh, yeah. So that was, you you showed up with that proclivity. Yeah, when I was in high school, I interned at the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, for their allergy and infectious disease segment. I thought I wanted to be a virologist. I wanted to save lives. I thought, you know, and I enjoyed the work. I mean, I was such a science nerd in high school. I took all the classes and we had we didn't have AP, we had the IB program and I did bio and chem and physics and all those things. And it was great. I thought that was going to be the thing I would do. But yeah, I don't know. I tur- I'd made a right turn somewhere down the line. And I was in I was living in London and interning at their NHS, um, the National Health Services and doing a lot of stuff around social health programs and thought that would be really cool. But when I was there, I started meeting a lot of designers, a lot of writers, a lot of authors. And I think that was the first time I sort of started to see how you made a life, how you made a creative life. Because before then, I just had no idea. No one in my family is an artist. No one's a writer. I mean, you, this is, by the way, the idealized, romanticized version of college for a lot of folks is why you yeah. go because it opens up your mind and you thought you wanted to go here, but you go there. I think a lot of folks effectively treat it as this is a thing I'm going to do for the next four years and my stop to becoming a doctor, becoming a lawyer, whatever the next mm-hmm. thing I'm supposed to do. And you said, no, no, I'm actually going to take advantage of the opportunity I have to sort of imagine a different world for myself. That's a really beautiful way to put Wasn't it. it. I mean, I write that down. <laughs> when I was there, I was in free fall, though. I don't know. I mean, it's, re- you know, UVA, is, I can't say enough. It was so conservative. There were, when I was there, the first black female student body president was elected and then immediately attacked and called the N-word, you know, like horrible things happened when I was there. And then, you know, it's just, it was very stressful. It was a very difficult awakening. It was a really hard confrontation with just systemic biases in the world. You know, when I was there, a professor was overheard saying, like, he doesn't know why women bother taking economics classes. They'll never get it. You know, just stuff like stuff like that, where you're just like, what? This is supposed to be like, there was just such a harsh. So mind expanding, maybe the wrong way. Yeah. Or a less pleasant way. Yeah. Yeah. So you get out of there. I dipped out at first opportunity left for London, which was great. (laughs) And then you were done with UVA or or did you finish up there? I did finish back at UVA, but I came back and I kind of felt like, you know, I had a blueprint. I felt like I can explore my creative side and I'll have a job. I mean, that was the thing. London really opened my eyes to that, that there are lots of ways to have a life and you didn't have to be a doctor or a lawyer or work in econ, which is sort of how UVA kind of pushed, like funnels people into those three professional fields. So when I got out, I got out. I talk about it like it was a jail sentence, but that's kind of how it felt. So when I graduated, I worked as a waitress, and which really kind of taught me everything I need to know about being a journalist, like how to read people. You know, you want to maximize output, which is basically your tip. So you're kind of like, do they want more from me, less? Like, when do I ask this question? When do I press this? You know, it's like you're learning really how to read scenarios and people. But I decided to move to California with some friends and intern at magazines there. It was basically California or New York, and I'd always wanted to live in California. It was San Francisco for you, right? I I went to San Francisco. So this is when? 2005. 2005. So dot-com bubble 1.0 is done, but it's coming back right around then. MySpace is Totally, yeah. San Francisco is picking up. And what was the thought? All right, technology is interesting. I'll write about that, or I'll just do something, and I'll write about whatever. Yeah, I sort of wanted to take some time off and just kind of enjoy living life, which I did in San Francisco for a little while. And I waitressed at a bunch of different places and, you know, got bored of that pretty quickly. And so started interning in every publication I could find. I guess I didn't say that when I when I came back from London, 
I took a graduate class called Grassroots Publishing, and we put out a publication every semester. So I did that and was like, oh my God, I fell in love. I was like, I love publishing. I love creating a product. I love having editorial direction. It was like a feminist magazine. It was awesome. So I knew I wanted to sort of think about working in magazines and sort of think about I thought I wanted to be an editor at the time. And so when I got to San Francisco, I just made the rounds. I interned at every... And there aren't that many in San Francisco. There aren't right? that many, There's and I worked at all of them. There's SFS, there's San Francisco Magazine. I applied to 7 by 7 I mean, I went, I made the rounds. I worked at Girlfriends, which is a now defunct lesbian magazine. I talked to SF Weekly. I mean, I was, I did everything. I wrote, I even wrote like inserts for like those free pamphlets that you get that tell you like where to go and what and, bars and are did cool. you a model oh i want that person's job i want that person's career that thing is a neat thing to do i want to try to get to that point no i didn't so really i didn't really have that in mind i just sort of wanted to see what it was like and i kind of gave myself a timeline like i'll try this for two years and then maybe i'll have to try something else and i was taking photography classes i was doing lots of creative things and when i was at San Francisco Magazine. I was a research assistant for a guy there, Nelson Mui, who was writing a story about gay men in San Francisco who were having unprotected sex. Because I had a science background, I ended up getting my final degree as an interdisciplinary between science and anthropology just because I, I needed to graduate and it was like, just mush those two things together and be done with it. It felt like such a natural progression for me. I was like, this is, has all the things I'm interested in science, like cultural research. It was also sort of a personal essay. It was really fascinating. So working on that, I was like, oh, these are the kinds of stories that I want to do. So that was sort of the first introduction to sort of like me thinking about... That's the light bulb going off? That was a light bulb going off. And then he or someone in that era was like, you should work at Wired. And I hadn't actually thought about it before. And I was like, oh, yeah. Like, I don't know why I felt like that might not be my thing, but it's totally my thing. Like, I like all these things. I'm, I totally grew Culture, up. science. Yeah. There's a total natural mix. overlap for me. Yeah. And so I, I applied their internship program and got in. All right. We're going to talk about the New York Times in one second. First, mm-hmm. Lauren Good from The Verge is going to come back on. She's going to help us generate some income, some revenue <laughs> for this thing. Hang on one second. Sortable isn't your typical ad tech company. They're a company built on data using technology and machine learning to make intelligent decisions. Their ad engine analyzes millions of ad impressions every day, and they're working with all of the major ad networks, including Google, AppNexus, AOL, OpenX, and Amazon, just to name a few. In real time, they analyze users, geography, device types, session depth, layouts, networks, and bids. Using machine learning, their ad engine understands which ad network is going to pay the most for every impression, and of course, make sure those ad networks fill your ad space. Bottom line is that they're working on some really interesting stuff, and they're helping a growing list of web publishers make more money and stop worrying about their ads. These guys started out as publishers, so they know how much work it takes to make money online. Check them out at sortable.com slash recode. Sortable is making ads suck less at sortable.com slash recode. Thanks, Lauren. Ladies and gentlemen, men and women, your mom has always been an expert on everything. She tells you about cooking, relationship advice. My mom is a nerd, not surprisingly, so she's the one who answered most of my science questions. So it's time to pay her back, time to pay your mom back. What you can do for her is get her something awesome for Mother's Day. You will look like an expert on Mother's Day when you use Pro Flowers. Here's an awesome deal. Your mom gets 100 blooms with a free glass, vase, or vase for $19.99 plus shipping and handling. You want to make her extra special because you're an extra good son or daughter? You can upgrade to a premium vase, vase, and get gourmet chocolates for just $9.99 more. Go to proflowers.com today. Use my code Kafka. That's K-A-F like Frank. K-A, you know that. Proflowers takes the guesswork out of sending your mom, grandma, or wife the perfect Mother's Day gift. 
Pro flowers are guaranteed to be fresh and beautiful for at least seven days or your money back. Visit proflowers.com. You click the blue microphone in the top right corner. You type in Kafka. It seems like a lot of work. It's easy. Mother's Day is May 8th, so you got to hurry up. Get your order in today at proflowers.com. Click on the microphone. Type in Kafka. Back with Jenna Wortham. You were just explaining your... It's not that arduous a path, right? Like, you had a few different jobs. You waitressed. You went to Wired. And then, boom, New York Times. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm making it. I'm, like, truncating it. You're compressing it. it, yeah. I'm compressing it. I mean, I I just don't want to... I don't want to perpetuate the idea that it just, like, happened overnight. I mean, I spent years working for free, and which I don't recommend. But I worked basically eight hours a week. I was waitressing all night. And I was, you know, I was working in a bar until two in the morning and then getting up and going to an internship at 9 a.m. You know, it was tough. And it was, it was tough in a city like San Francisco, which even in 2005, right, it's not... It's not the metropolis that it is now, but most wasn't people cheap. wasn't cheap. And most people, my internship programs, the people running in, the people that I was interning with, you know, they had other sources of income, so they weren't didn't have the same financial strains. They that weren't I waitressing, had. they weren't bartending. I mean, they this weren't. is one of the things about journalism broadly, right? Yeah. Especially in cities like New York and San Francisco, is is whether they're internships where they pay you nothing or almost nothing, mm-hmm. or entry level jobs. Again, even in the good old days, they probably weren't paying your rent. And so you get a certain kind of person, looks a certain way. Has a certain worldview. Has a certain worldview, ends up in these jobs, and it sort of self-perpetuates that kind of culture, right? Yeah. And I mean, you know, Wired paid, and they were incredibly accommodating to my schedule. But some of the other internships I had were not, you know, and they I would get in trouble for leaving early and coming late. (laughs) But I had to work to pay rent, you know, no one else did. So it was interesting. It was a a really interesting intro into the world of journalism. And the New York Times shows up when? They knock on your door, Jenna, we see. Your work, yes. come work for us. Well, you wrote something about something that I wrote for Wired. Really? You know this. No. You don't know this story? No, tell me the story. You would sometimes reblog things that I wrote for Wired. So I started out at Wired as a fact checker. That was my intro to journalism school. So I was fact checking all these amazing pieces by like Josh Davis and people who were just like incredible storytellers and really diligent reporters. And I could, I was listening to their tapes. I was looking at their transcripts. I could see how they were putting stories together. And that was basically my free education to how to be a journalist, which was awesome. And then I started blogging for our culture website and was writing about social media and all these new services that were coming up because by then it was like 2007 and I, you know, everyone was like, who cares about Twitter? And I was like, Twitter is a huge deal. And you would reblog me. This must have been Silicon Alley Insider. I love that I have a role yeah. in the. So wait, so what? So, so I, I want to know more about me. So I, I know. I wish I could find the exact article, but it was some. You know, we could ask Damon Darlin, who was my one of my first editors okay, at the time. Damon saw it. Yeah. reached out to me. And Damon. So, so Damon was a New York Times technology editor in San Francisco. Uh-huh. Reached out to you and said, "Hey, what's up? I like that article Peter Kafka rewrote. Mm-hmm. Literally, yeah." Like Great. that was literally, awesome. this was like 2000. It's a much better story than I thought. <laughs> yeah. And so we started getting coffee and, you know, Damon's great. And he, I was so lucky to have a really supportive team of editors when I first got to the Times. But we, you know, we met and we had coffee for like five months. It was basically a long interview process. And I came in as a business blogger of all and, things. And so Damon comes, the New York Times comes and says, we'd like you to work at the New York Times. Is that 100%? Yes, absolutely. No questions asked. Or some people bizarrely think maybe not for me or I'm not sure let's see what you have to offer <laughs> that's funny what have you heard no I am um, the, the first meeting was just like do you freelance who are you let's get together as people do and so we started having coffee and was great eventually it turned into look we're trying to expand our footprint on the web you have this background as you basically run this culture vertical for wired.com maybe you should come right for us and I was sort of like that sounds out of my league. I'm way too green. I was 24. I was like, I'm not ready. And I actually did turn the job down at first. Like I had, I did the whole, you know, I came in for the interviews. 
I, you know, it was terrifying. It was basically, I had put everything on the line to go to New York. I had no money. And I told my job there'd been like an emergency, which was totally a lie. And was, I like flew to San Francisco and was like crashing You're like that guy, couch. Mike, who said he left the company because his friend died and he was yeah. actually building a cabin and tumbling <laughs> exactly. about it. Exactly. Yeah, except I wasn't, I mean, I was savvy enough not to be tweet. I made sure you my tweet tweets did not, yeah, have the geotag New York on them. But um, was So you didn't of, think you were worthy, though, the first time out? You thought, I'm too young, I don't know what I'm going to be in over my head, or I'm not going to work out, I don't want to fail? I don't want to fail. I think I was nervous about failing. And look, I loved California. All my friends were there. I'd made all my friends move out at that point. You know, I was living a good life. But at the same time, it was like a dream job. It just felt too good to be true. I felt not ready. And I actually wrote that back. I wrote that to them, to the editors. And one of them called me and was like, I think it was Vindu Goyal calls me. And it's just like, I got your email. I think you should delete it and send me a new one that says, I can't wait to start this job. And so that was really funny. And so I just did that. And I was like, whatever, you know, why not? And so you get there, you're writing about technology and business for the Times. Mm -hmm. And I think in the Times view of the world, and I think a lot of people outside the Times say, all right, once you get that job, you stay on a track. That track, maybe you go to different bureaus, Mm -hmm. maybe you go to Washington at some point. There's a whole sort of train that you go on so you can sort of ascend the ladder at the times and of course the times is where you sort of want to stay all your life it seems to me that you i mean i think you have an awesome job but i would assume in in times world sort of by leaving traditional journalism and traditional beat reporting and going to the magazine is that considered a detour or is that i mean did you step off a belt a conveyor belt at some point i think i realized pretty early on that i wasn't going to be a Brian Selter. I wasn't going to be an Angie Ross Sorkin. I'm not really, I mean, I love knowing how money moves because it's so fascinating. And I'm so grateful that I had that as my intro into kind of being a reporter because I learned, you know, what Brad Stone and Ashley Vance really helped me come up and learn how to be a diligent and like tough tech reporter. But it didn't animate you fully. It, it did. But I, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, I started out in culture and that's kind of where I wanted to end up. You know, I wanted to, I always sort of wanted to be in this business because I wanted to write about people who look like me so that people who look like me would read about themselves and feel like this is the way forward. You know, like I can do what these people do or like this is, I don't know. I, I don't know. I feel like that was sort of always the goal, which is I'm, I'm still trying to get to where I wanted to, you know, wanted to get. So like, I'm, I feel like I'm still moving towards this goal even now, but being a business reporter was so fun. And I mean, writing about startups was really fun. I remember writing a blog post about Facebook buying Instagram that ended up on the front page of the, you know, the New York Times it was great. I mean, it was it was so exciting. And I've got to work around so many people. And it's such a smart place to be. But the magazine is sort of the, you know, it has this kind of hallowed reputation within the institution. It's like, the, it's like everybody wants to work at the magazine, especially now with Jake Silverstein who's running it, who's so dreamy and wonderful. And like, everybody wants to be there. So it is kind of, it is, it doesn't feel like a detour. But I also feel like I've never been someone who's looked at the annals of historic times men and been like, this is who I want to be like, there's no one there that I that I could be like so I'm kind of always doing my own thing and and that's why I have all these side projects too because I feel like even being a journalist in 2016 means constantly reinventing yourself you have to reinvent the wheel basically it is hard for me to imagine side projects Um, a job like yours where it's so consuming and to write this kind of stuff you write or you Mm. gotta throw all yourself into it I think most people write they have one job and that's the thing maybe a family life and a little extra time there but you're doing all this cool stuff on the side and the Mm -hmm. one thing I saw that I want to talk about was pop-up magazine explain to people who haven't seen it which is most people because they literally cannot see Pop-Up Magazine unless mm-hmm. they go see it, right, in person, mm-hmm. what it is, what the idea behind it is. Yeah, Pop-Up Mag is an offshoot of, I guess it's, I don't know how to describe it. It's supposed to be like an ephemeral 
live performance of a magazine. So you have the traditional front of the book, kind of shorter pieces. You have the meaty features. You have the photo essays. And so then you, a, yeah, it's a performance. It's an actual, like a live performance that you right. buy tickets to and go see. Yeah. And it's related to California Sunday Magazine in some yeah. way. I'm not, I'm Pop up clear. came first and okay. then Sunday Mag. Yeah, I was going to say it's an offshoot of Sunday Mag, but that's not true. It's like under the same production company. But the idea is there are all these pieces performed by journalists and photojournalists. It's all nonfiction, but it's all ephemeral. Like so you're you can, watching a magazine you're essentially, but you can't, they, they don't videotape. It. Yeah, we were trying to do something with you guys at the Code Media Conference. We'd get you to do some of it. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's going to work, but it's great. So you can literally only go see it if you go see it at BAM in Brooklyn or wherever it plays in Minneapolis or San LA Francisco. or wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, and you like that idea that it's sort of catch it or don't catch it. It was fun. I mean, as a journalist, you know, when you're writing, you're just like constantly in, in the sweat den of your own fear and like, you know what I mean? Like eating oatmeal out of the same pot for like 24 hours while you're trying to do something. It's <laughs> it's a very singular yeah. process. And being a journalist does kind of mean being a lone wolf, especially being a times person because you're always, you know, the job takes up so much time and it's sort of your number one love. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's just for me, but I, I do feel like it takes up so much time, but you're just in, you're kind of by yourself all the time. And so it was really exciting to collaborate. It was really exciting to work in a totally different medium. Like I'm not. I've tried describing yeah. what it is that you did at Pop-Up and you're kind of the star of Pop-Up or you're at least you're one of the, the main features to, in that metaphor. You're near the end of the show. It's a long production. I keep fixating on the word projector and then I can't mm-hmm. really explain what it is. So you, yeah. you explain what you do. So I teamed up with um, a troupe of live shadow puppeteers called Manual Cinema. They're based in Chicago and they're incredible and they perform pieces live, but they also use projectors to kind of, it's so weird. Yeah. It's like they're using humans as puppets, but then they're also projecting kind of It's like old school projectors you would Mm -hmm. have in grade school, overhead projectors. Yeah. It's almost impossible to describe. You kind of have to go to their website and like, and then you get it right away. But I wrote a piece, they performed it. And then there was, they also wrote a piece of music that a live orchestra performed. And then I read the script kind of narrating this. So story. I feel a little, because you blew my mind when I saw it, but I, I was like, how did she figure out the projection part? Someone else figures out the right, projection part. You up. write the story. I just did the story, which was also so fun. I've never written a script. I've never written, I've never storyboarded anything. It was awesome. It was so much fun. And this one felt like a story you would write about. It's about memory and mm-hmm. losing your memory and using the phone to replace part of your memory. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of a metaphor there. Yeah, it was part of a, um, a series that I've been trying to pitch and sort of write about sort of how memory is changing as we use our phones as, to supplement our cognitive functions. And I'd found this guy who had severe memory loss just because of repetitive head injuries and how he'd kind of made an ad hoc system out of his iPhone and a bunch of different programs to serve as his brain. So I'd done the reporting. I talked to this guy for like five years and I'd mentioned it to Doug. Who's, you had talked to him for five years? Yeah. And it was really... How do you talk with someone for five years and not write about them um, during it just, that time? I know. No, but well, that happened. There's, yeah. you know, it's like, I think that happens, but it, the story never really, it never really panned out. It never really turned. Cause it kind of, at that time, you know, too, then like Nick Carr's book had come out and it kind of felt like... You know, I didn't know that I had something entirely new to say about what was happening to our brains because, I mean, and the research is like still so murky because no one knows really. So I'd, I was sitting on this guy's story forever, and we'd been we'd been talking for five years, and it was really kind of funny because, of course, he has no idea who I am every time we talk. So I have to like remind him, or he has notes of who I am, and so he has um, to consult his phone to sort of see what he's he doing. Minute mm-hmm. to minute, day to day. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of funny. Like when we reunited, I was like, it's so nice to see you, Patrick. And he was just like, I would say the same thing, but I have no memory of like ever meeting you. And I'm like, oh, that's right. So has he seen the performance you guys, you guys did? He hasn't seen no. it, but I, I mean, it's not, it would not be possible for him to come because it's, 
it would just be too disorienting for him to try to be. And he lives in Colorado and like there was no show really close to it. But I did send him the demo that we were playing off of because the manual cinema team is in Chicago and I'm in New York. And so we were practicing using kind of a demo version of the performance and I sent it to him. And so he was able to see, I guess he was able to see like a portion of it, but he was really happy with it. Do you think you'll do more work that's sort of time and, and space specific where it's not replicated, where you can't redistribute it to other people or, or oh, is that yeah. a one-off? Yeah, you no, like that totally. Idea? I'm working on this pretty strange like sci-fi YA experiment where I'm gonna, I'm writing like a 10 series. I've already written the story, but I'm going to break it up into 10 parts and then have an illustrator illustrate it. And I was talking about it over the weekend, so I feel like I'm repeating myself. But it's going to be cool and I'm sort of trying to figure out I want it to feel like found media, so it'll, it'll either go out in a series of like email newsletters, or it'll just be like files that pop up in something like Dropbox, probably. But um, yeah, it's like a. Strange... What do you like about that sort of ephemeral slash accidental slash can't go to the JennaWortham.com website and find it nature of that stuff? It's just different, and it's fun to work on. And I mean, I do really enjoy my day job, and I have really challenging and fun assignments. But I do have a lot of bandwidth and a lot of energy, so I want to use it while I have it before I'm, you know, caught up in other things in life to deal with it. But it just it feels really fun to work on a piece of media that I'm not worried about, you know, how many people are going to look at it. Like I've been writing for the broadest possible audience for years, and now I'm really interested in like what does it look like to write for a highly specialized niche audience that isn't trying to make money? Like I don't need subscribers. I don't I have the luxury of having a full-time job, so I don't have to have, you know, and I do have my side projects that subsidize my travel. So like if I were just going to make something purely because I wanted it to be different and stand on its own, what does that look like? So you have a big fan. I saw on Instagram. I think you, I think you, 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 you distributed this several times. It was a thank you note and lovely flowers from Beyonce. Yeah. <laughs> because what? What did you do that, that required I flowers? I don't know what the queen, I don't know what she saw. I don't know what she liked. I guess she liked something that we wrote about her last video formation. Um, this was the one that came out right at the time of the Super, Super Bowl. Bowl right, yeah, right before the Super Bowl. It was a little embarrassing to get that note, to be honest with you. But yeah, we but live in an era where, you know. But you, then you published it. You got a show. You can't tell. So I had to kind of just. But I did. I, I debated about that for a long time. Because yeah. it's kind of, you know, it's sort of like. We're in this weird era of journalism where it feels like everyone's doing things for the retweet. Like you want to write something about someone famous and they'll see it, you know, and that's like what people are going for. And I think that's a bit, you know, misguided. And so I didn't want to feel like playing into that or that's the only thing that mattered. But at the same time, it was just like too good not to share. So do you think we're moving away from a sort of retweet? How many likes do you have on Facebook? How many hearts did you get on Instagram era and towards a different kind of consumption and distribution? Or do you think that's one part of it? I think that's one part of it. I mean, I get all my news from Instagram at this point. I didn't know there was flooding in Houston until I saw it on The Shade Room just now, which is an Instagram account that I follow and have written about. We had Angie on stage at this event we did last month. She's great. Yeah, she's awesome. Or like even, you know, I'm not a huge, I don't know, I'm like going to say I'm not a huge like Kardashian Empire person. I guess I am, but I don't know. Anyway, Kylie Jenner posted a picture of herself at Coachella in this like amazing swimsuit. And it's like, who was the designer? I had to go look it up last night. You know, I mean, it's... It totally, I mean, that's like, that's where I get, I feel like, most of my culturally relevant news from. So I don't know. I that's mean, supplanted Twitter for you? That's sort of your news feed? Yeah, Twitter feels like a fish tank. I just feed it, you know, gotta feed it. But it's not at all where anything interesting, although Twitter low key has the best editing like filters in there. In their, they have the best photo editing features that people don't give them enough credit for, but they do. But I just, I feel like there's way too much pressure on like, 
you know, trying to have a being good at Twitter and like going viral on Twitter. Like you see a lot of people just kind of constantly copying each other and trying to come up with better ways to make jokes about something, which I really enjoy reading, but it takes way too much energy to do. And it's, I'm a little bit fatigued on it. And before we started this, you were Snapchatting. Yeah, I like Snapchat. I think there's a lot more originality on Snapchat because people get to reinvent themselves every time they show themselves. You know, like it's not really, you know, the feedback loop is kind of broken. Like you can see how many people and who looked at your snaps, but no one else can see that information. And we have Snapchat scores, but no one knows what they're based on. Like there's, it's just, it's sort of, it caters to a very different set of instincts about You've seen this movie before, though, right? You've written about technology and business. You know yeah. there's going to be increasing pressure on Snapchat to turn that in, to turn that attention into money, bring yeah. in brands, work with publishers at some point. I'm sure there's already pressure to sort of remove some of the stuff that makes it distinct or at least make it more sellable. I know. I wonder when that's going to happen. I mean, they already have the Discover tab, right? right? They already have those partnerships. I don't know how well those are doing. I have no insight into how well those are doing. Um, they do less well than the live stories, right? The live I stories so. that people want to engage in, statistically. The live, and the live stories are actually fascinating. I mean, that was sort of what really galvanized me to want to start traveling, too, in a weird way, because it was like they were doing like a day in the life of teens in Istanbul, and I'm just like this is incredible. Like, that's actually kind of amazing. And I feel like I don't want to, and also I was like, I don't want to look at Snapchat's edited version of like what the world looks like. I need to see it for myself. But you know, it was, and, but anyway, I feel like the discover tab is, it's, it's just that it's a tab. I never look at it. I'm really interested. The Times in, is not tapping you to create a discover channel for them. I have not been asked, please don't put that into the world. I'm <laughs> seems like an obvious way to go. All right. Yeah. Um, what's your next story? Well, I'm writing a new technology column for the Times Magazine, um, just called On Technology. It's once a month. It's in our front of the book section. And I have to go come up with ideas for it. So that's my big task for today, right. which is just thought clouds. I just have to send my editor thought clouds and colors and Pinterest links. So that's Jenna, what I have to do now. Thanks for taking time from your, your word cloud day. I appreciate it. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Thank you guys for listening. If you want to hear more of this stuff, it's very easy to get more of this. You go to iTunes, you subscribe. While you're there, you can leave us a review. You can give us five stars. It's awesome. If you like that, there's even more free content for you. Kara Swisher has Recode Decode. Lauren Good from The Verge, who you heard earlier, has Too Embarrassed to Ask. Thanks to Mac Weldon, Sortable, and ProFlowers. Thanks also to Digital Media, the folks who distribute and bring in ads for the show, so you can listen to it for free. Thanks, guys. This is Recode Media. I'll be back next week with another awesome guest.